Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to this very special episode of George Ezra and Friends the podcast. This is the New Year's special and our guest this week is the one and only Shania Twain. (laughs) It's just amazing to be able to say that. Um, what an experience from receiving the first message that said that that this show could even be a possibility to flying out to meet Shania and um, spending the afternoon and the evening with her and her family and friends it was just um, yeah incredible and the hospitality was just amazing so Shania if you are listening back to this I doubt you are but if you are (laughs) thank you very much and thank you to your lovely gang and it was just awesome um for those of you that are new here please go back and um listen to previous episodes as well because uh it's i've absolutely loved putting this podcast together um sitting down with people and listening to their stories i just i feel very fortunate to be able to do it and uh, i think you will love other episodes as well you are absolutely gonna love this one shania was just it was fascinating and um yeah, the reason this is a New Year's special is uh, because I started to record Series 3 and uh, it became very apparent very quickly that I probably wasn't going to have enough time to, to, you know, give it the love and attention that it needed. And at that point, I already had two episodes recorded. So you can go back and listen to the Christmas special with Lewis Capaldi. And then here we are for the New Year's special with Shania Twain. I also just listen out in the middle of the episode um, I've got a bit of an advert announcement for another project that I'm starting um, which I need your help with ladies and gentlemen so keep your ears peeled for that I hope you're all having a lovely Christmas period um, and yeah hope you're well enjoy the show thank you Shania thank you very much enjoy Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of George Ezra and Friends. Um, This week, I am joined by a complete legend. It is an absolute pleasure to be sat with and to introduce you all to Shania Twain. Hello, Shania. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be happy one of your, you know, happy to be one of your friends. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is a good way of extending my friendship, just calling the show friends. Yeah. So how are you? I'm super great. I'm in the studio. I'm being creative, and look where I'm working. I mean, yeah, I should just say. I know we have to take a picture, and so everybody can see what. For everybody listening, Shania has very kindly invited me down to her place in Montreux, in Switzerland, and it's just overlooking Lake Geneva, and it's absolutely stunning. I was saying you've set the bar high for series three kind of locations places to go yeah, yeah. pick destination places for yeah. the for the series yeah. no it's very beautiful and very relaxing and um let you know it, it sort of makes me feel a little bit mentally isolated in a very good way which i need to do when i'm writing songs mm-hmm. so the tranquility of it is um is very special and very necessary for me so well i have been um ever since i found out that we were going to be able to do this episode and this conversation. I've been lost in a Shania Twain bubble, listening to all your records and digging through interviews and just immersing myself in it all. 
um, and I have an idea of where I'd like to start the conversation. Um, I'm yours, absolutely. Well, it all, there was one clip that I watched, and it was a clip of you um, doing. A, you were giving an acceptance speech on the day that you were given your um, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Okay. okay. And in your speech, at one point, you said and I am paraphrasing here, but you said something along the lines of, you know, to be stood here now compared to my childhood and where I came from is some, somewhat of a small miracle. Um, and I was really intrigued by that. And I wondered if you would be happy to elaborate on that somewhat and give us an idea of what it looked like growing up for you and where that was and what your childhood was like. Of course, you know, it, I never take it for granted that I'm where I am today. And I'm, I'm constantly reflecting, not looking back so much or looking behind, but just never forgetting uh, what it took to, to make it, I guess. You know, when I was a kid, we always, you know, my mother would always say, you're going to make it, you're going to make it. And what, what does make it mean? So as a child, I make it meant being able to buy groceries um, without too much of a gap <laughs> between, you know. So my childhood was, we were, we were always anxious um, about being able to, for our, our uh, groceries to last to the next shop, the next grocery shop, that we would be able to stretch it out among the five kids and because uh, we didn't really know when the next um, bit of money might come in. My dad was always between jobs and uh, we just didn't have money to shop to go do your regular grocery shop every week. So we, there was a lot of um, uh, living on hope that something would come through or we would just juggle things like not pay the, the hydro bill or not pay the electric bill to be able to get groceries. And to go from that level of instability growing up as a child, making it was not where I am right now. Making it, this is nothing like what I would have imagined making it. This was not accessible to somebody like me. Uh, I, I would dream like everybody dreams about people that lived in houses like this or that I'm living in now and uh, not being able to, you know, not having to really worry about what's on sale or only buying the, the bruised apples, for example. So I feel a really great sense of freedom now in my life that I've achieved a level of, of um, comfort that I can let a lot of that anxiety go. Um, but I never forget what it feels like, that, that, that anxious stress of making it from, from week to week. So your kind of level, your understanding of the idea of making it was actually more just being able to afford food each week. Functional. Functional, you know. Right. To be able to pay, so, you know, to me, making it is being able to pay all your bills on time. Uh, to 
you know, to not go in debt, to be able to live um, within your means, have enough means to live mm. uh, comfortably. Mm. Comfortably, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, drive a nice car or even to drive a new car. Yeah, yeah. Any car, <laughs> a working drive car. Drive a car, yeah. <laughs> yes, a working car, you know, to buy the bus pass. Yeah. To So uh, this has gone way beyond my wildest um, dreams. And so I... Uh, it's just so far from where I came from that I can't help but remember. And was it a, the town that you lived in, was that a common story for a lot of the families that you lived around? Was it a large town, a small town, and was it a working town, or were you on the fringes of that? What did it look like? Well, it's a smallish working class town. There, there are a lot of, I was in more the category of the uh, underprivileged, um, families. And no, we, it wasn't uh, dominated by underprivileged uh, families. I think that was always a very, you know, a good balance of, of a mix. But we were definitely the, the poor group in the poor group. Um, and um, luckily, though, my, I grew up with a native family. Um, and we hunted and fished and could supplement our, you know, food with wild game. Were you a part of that as well? Would you, were you taught and learned how to be involved in that? Yes, of course. Hey. Uh, I had to learn, of course, I had to learn. All, I learned that very, very young. I was already shooting a gun at a rifle at eight years old and um, cleaning birds and fish and, and always, you know, it, it, whatever it was, whether, whether it was beaver or moose or whatever, I was always a part of that and, yeah. This might sound like an odd question because I know you were doing this for necessity, but did you have a, did you enjoy that as a kid? Was there, did you enjoy the outdoor nature of it? And the, was there something exciting about it? Well, the hunting was also cultural for me. Yeah. Um, it was a bonus. We were always very excited when we, uh, we were always celebrating if we caught partridge or rabbit or, and you know, my, my father and my grandparents um, taught us mostly me all of these skills and my little brothers I was the only I was a real tomboy so I was interested in, in following my father around everywhere and uh, I was usually the one him and I we would go out and and drive the roads and walk the trails looking for game so it was just a cultural thing and we were also uh, permitted to hunt all year round okay being native Oh, okay, mm -hmm. so that's... A... So we weren't part of the seasonal, you know, hunter camouflage mm -hmm. club or anything like that. <laughs> we would just, after school, get in the truck and drive down a bush road and go look for dinner. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that was our reality. And when, when, there, when the reservation would get big game like moose uh, or beaver or, or a, a big 
stock of duck or whatever or or, go or geese, then they would share it with everybody in the in the in the broader family. Okay. And send us literally a box of game. And so that that was a cultural thing. Yes. Yeah. You know. I understand. A more a community. Yeah. yeah. Um, way of 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 living, but. I guess my point is more that we were, it was a privilege to have that access to the game mm. because we couldn't afford the meat in the store. No. And was there the opportunity if you, sorry, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but to me it's really interesting. If you went on a hunt and had a particularly good day, would you would you be more likely to hold on to the game of that hunt for yourself, or was there the option to then go and sell it in town and make extra money on it? No, we would never sell it. Okay. No, Always because we it. were we were into a community uh, share among each other. So if we, like I said, if they were, uh, if there was a lot of times the the on the reservation, they would go hunting in groups and and they would get a they would be hunting for everybody. Mm -hmm. Not just for their... And when you say share it with the wider family, is that a term used for the community? Right, so if you were off the reservation... Yeah. Because um, the reservation population is fairly small. Okay. So any relatives living in town, which were us, uh, and several others, uh, then they would, send us, they would send it out to us in okay. town. cool. <laughs> so um, it, it was very typical, you know, to go to my grandmother's house after school and... There was usually, uh, depending on the, the season, because some of the animals aren't good in certain seasons anyway, the meat. So, um, but in the fall, it would be particularly good. And we would put, they would just put the, the, a big chunk of meat, like a roast size meat, um, moose meat on the counter. And anybody that came over, stopped in or popped in, would just carve off a few bits and then fry it up. And that was just what we did. Um, and I've cleaned, you know, thousands of fish. <laughs> and, uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm now, ironically, a vegetarian. Right. So I, without the necessity of it, I'm not going hunting. Well, th but this all makes complete sense. This is why I was so interested when you said it's a small miracle that the change had happened in your life. I was so curious as to what that looked like. But they are, you know, two polar opposite worlds in many ways. I mean, hunting for us was not recreational. No, That's no. why I'm saying we weren't part of like the camouflage club. Oh, no, I get that. This yeah. was not our vacation yeah, yeah. Uh, thing. We would, my dad had to teach me how to uh, shoot a rifle and be accurate, that I could be useful while we're out there hunting. Yeah, yeah. And when you look back on those times, do you remember any particular soundtrack? Was there music in your family home? Was there music on the drives when you were going out hunting? Did, are you able to kind of soundtrack that time with what was going on? It's, it's a music that I grew up calling old-time country. Okay. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, old-time country. I don't even know if it's a Canadian term, old-time country. So uh, my parents always had, uh, I would group it, so it would be old-time country and folk music. 
and folk meaning uh, Gordon Lightfoot. We had a lot of, are you familiar with Gordon Lightfoot? I'm not familiar oh with that man. Oh my, okay, I'm so happy that I've been able this to share why, that with I know, you. This is why I love the podcast, because I sit down oh. with people and I go home with all this homework. This so Gordon Lightfoot. Gordon Lightfoot. Um, so Gordon Lightfoot, you know, he was somebody I grew up with, obviously Joni Mitchell. And there was a huge, as, as in my childhood, uh, soundtrack has a lot of folk music in it and you know Jim Crochet and I just you'll look you look up all the folkies of that time and then uh then the the, the old time country which was also just very much storytelling but with more wit and more I would say more of a daily lifestyle almost dialogue conversational type writing Mm-hmm. Less poetic, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And the so you know there, there were there was Don Williams, there there was Dolly Parton, there uh, Waylon Jennings, and oh, yeah. uh, Johnny Cash, big big Johnny Cash uh, fan, Glenn Campbell, and he sort of bridged the folk old country. Um, so. That's the music that would be playing in the truck on an eight track while we were driving down the, you know, the bush, yeah, the bush roads looking for moose tracks or. And was there, did you show early signs of having talent or even, even before talent an interest in music outside of your, were your siblings also showing that or was it very much a, this is Shania's thing? It was only me, which was a little, yeah, there's five of us kids, but there, it was only me. And at a very young age, I was I was three when my mother recognized that I was that I had some sort of something different musically, because I would always sing along with everything, but in harmony. Oh God, that's scary. If I had Isn't a kid and they were doing that, I'd be like, Where have you got that from? Yeah, I would always sing in harmony, and my mother would, you know, she thought it was odd. Uh, why would I do that? But I, and, and I did answer her eventually. You know, I was a little bit older, probably around six, when I was able to explain that I understood that I was singing the harmony. Oh, way. And she would say, yeah, why do you do that? And I said, well, I, it's very boring singing with the, with the melody. <laughs> and th- then I would very quickly start, um, so what I mean is that I would, I would create the other part. Mm. So you let the harmony, the, the melody go and, I'm going to find my own part and I'm going to blend. And, and I was always uh, very much a fan of group of vo- vocalists, for example. I mean, the Mamas and the Papas were huge for me. Um, the Carpenters were a mainstay in my whole, like still are. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Bee Gees later on. More a little later on because I really only knew about them once I was a preteen. But so a lot of groups, and I would always go for the harmonies and bluegrass, which is very much a very folk. I consider a very folk country. Is just full of these gorgeous blends um, of harmonies, yeah. where the melody is lost and, and the melody is irrelevant almost. It's just all about this cloud of, of 
chords, vocal yeah, yeah. chords, you know, that move around. And uh, I love that. You said it so right earlier where it is, it's storytelling and it's, it's a way of conveying, often in country music as well, I think quite hard subjects are tackled um, or quite painful subjects in, I don't know, in quite a like, universal way. It doesn't, it doesn't go, oh, God, you know, I'm not prepared to hear a story that sad just now. Right. There's a way of presenting it so that you, you can still enjoy it. It's a real, uh, it's a dark art, I think. I don't think it's easy to It do. is a dark art. Music, country music is very, and folk music, are very pleasant to listen to. They're easy to listen to. Uh, they just kind of roll along and they're, you know, they're often not very complex in their chord progressions. They uh, are a little, they're just easy to listen to. The instruments are usually more organic, they're, uh, they're softer sounds, it's not a distorted, mm -hmm. not a lot of a distortion uh, effect on anything usually. So it's easy on the ears in that sense. Um, but the the, the contrast, which is what I've always loved about country music and, uh, and folk music, is they, they, they're, they're going to roll along in these major chords and it'll be very pleasant, but then they're telling this terrible heartbreak story. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, that is just brilliant. It's a skill. Absolutely. It's a skill to... Uh, Oh, and they'll do the reverse. They'll, you know, if they do go to minors, a lot of the southwestern music goes to the minors, but then they'll be singing of this happy song, <laughs> happy <laughs> yeah. sunshine song. But what I think it does as well is it means that for those that are listening to the story, there's a there's like an extra reward on top of the face value song. So as you were saying, it's quite easy listening, and a lot of people can enjoy it. But then for those that are willing to listen a little harder, they'll get even something more from that song. Exactly. It's very true. I think Europe, uh, I think that, well, not just Europe, but on an international level, um, the audiences relate more to the folk side of country music because mm -hmm. uh, if they don't understand the language, they will miss out on the story. Mm. But the folk side of, of country really uh, tells more of a story a lot of the time, even just in the music mm -hmm. and the way the, the music rolls out. And I try to do that because I know that um, sometimes people just sing along phonetically even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, I, I've got a friend in Barcelona who was saying, especially when he was younger, his grasp on being able to talk English was next to none, but he could sing along to the whole of a Lady Gaga song and sing everything correctly without knowing what she was saying, was well, the example he used. And the, 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 words, the word that we've, the term that we've used now a couple of times is sing-along. Mm. So if you can, and I do try to, to write songs that are relatable, uh, obviously as a story, but also as a sing-along mm -hmm. because uh, that's what it creates. It creates sing-along environment and um, it doesn't really matter if you know, even know what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> no, which is the case I know, you know. No, I'm with you completely. Sometimes it's just, it's just a reality. So you can't be too precious about your storytelling. Yeah. Um, knowing that that's the case on an internet, you know, when you're an international, you're creating music for the international audience. You have to think that way. And do, do you, can you pinpoint a time when you first started to perform and 
where that was and you know did you instantly fall in love with that or was it kind of a something you had to ease into what did that look like I never enjoyed performing on stage it was always a terrible uh, frightening experience and I was always traumatized to be honest <laughs> like very much so but I'll explain, or maybe the explanation is in the fact that I started doing it so young in an environment that was not suitable for kids. So, you know, if you're with Disney and you're eight years old, uh, you know, they cater to the kids. They're, it's for, you know, they're, they're managing the environment so that it's, they adapt the, the working environment so that it's kid friendly. I was singing in bars that had strippers on the, in the breaks and people were, everybody was drunk, always drunk by the time I got on stage because at eight, up until I was 11, uh, and I started doing it at eight uh, in bars, singing in bars, that, that was my platform, that was the stage. Uh, you, I had to uh, only start, there were two things I could do. I could either go on between the sets and then leave as soon as the, uh, um, the, the, on the breaks I had to leave. So I could only be in there for like 15 minutes at a time or something like that. I'd get up, sing three, five songs, and then I'd have to go back again and, and what else. So that had to be regulated. Um, and then, but the worst was most bars only allowed you to go up after midnight because when you're underage, when they stop serving alcohol at midnight, now you are allowed in. But that's when people are going to be most drunk. They're most drunk. Oh my God. And not only that, in Canada, at least at the time, when you know midnight is striking, you load up the table for last call. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys do that as well? Absolutely. Right. You do it an hour in advance. Right. You, you load up the table with last call, right? Mm -hmm. So they, run, they go around, last call, last call, everybody loads up the table, and now they're there till two, three in the morning, finishing up because they're allowed to sit and finish. And so I would go up and at midnight, everybody already drunk, falling over, fighting, like lots of bar fights and, you know, craziness. And then um, when I got my liquor license, it was called, I, I was 11. Now I can be in all night. Now I see everything. And I'm only 11. And just to give people an idea of what the outcome of that, like how much were you being paid to do that or was it just for experience? Good question. I was paid enough for gas money yeah. to get me there and back. So my parents would get gas money, like 50 bucks uh -huh. a night or 25 bucks or something like that. Um, so that would pay for some gas. And if I would make some tips, I would, then we would get a bit of extra money. I mean, I never got any money. It was just always for my parents, and of course. And, uh, but my mother was my manager, and she was always making connections with people. I mean, we are talking, so this is the level we're talking. We are talking the local diviest pub bars you can imagine, okay? And where people start drinking at 11 o'clock in the afternoon, in the morning, <laughs> right? They're having their first beer. Now, by midnight, you know, it's nuts. And 
my my mother would be uh, networking with the bands that were the, that were coming in that were booked properly booked in there, and she would talk to them and say, "Would you let my daughter c come up and sing? Would you or would you stay up after midnight and play for her for like a set? Because uh, she can only come in at midnight, stuff like that." And these people, they didn't, they didn't have any success. They were just making ends meet themselves, yeah. but they were at least booked regularly. So she got to know some of the local agents, other artists, and they were gracious. I was a kid, so mm -hmm. they would invite me to go do uh, festival performances. And she started making that stuff happen mm. on a very local, small town level, you know, very village level. But I did get experience out of it, and... And it sounds like deep-end experience. It sounds like there is no harder way to, you know, learn your craft, really. That was my, that was my university. That was my, my fame school. That was my, that was my school. That was my education. Um, so, I mean, there was no other way to get that education. And then, for sure. What were you choosing to sing? So when you stepped up on stage, were you, was it your choice? As an 11-year-old, were you saying, I want to sing this? Or was there an element of, well, if you want to keep the punters happy, they need to hear, you know? I had to keep the punters happy. So I would do, uh, but I did, like, I did like the old-time country, and I would choose the ones that I loved the most. Mm -hmm. So I would do, for example, uh, Bobby McGee. You know that song, Chris Christopherson's wrote it, Janis Joplin did it later on, made it. I could well. I'm I did, like... I did a song called Country Roads, I did um, Kalijah, which is Charlie Pride, I did, I mean, songs that were, uh, you know, before my, my time, but I was listening to my parents' music. Yeah. Um, I would do Dolly Parton songs, of course, they were always a staple. And so I did a lot of old-time country, and then I would do a lot of the other more pop stuff that I loved that was like bread, and um, I would do the Bee Gees, like words. Yeah, yeah. I would do, and I would do my original songs. I started writing at 10 years old, so I no would way. always do, yeah, I would always try to do at least one to three of my originals. And how long would a set be, you know? I would play for 30 minutes, 40 okay, minutes. Okay. Um, you know, as long as I could, like, to keep the band up there after midnight was difficult. Yeah. And I would go up there with just my guitar, but I would lose everybody's attention because they were so loud. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very loud and rowdy at that point of the night. Nobody wants to sit there quiet and listen. I read somewhere about, at some point, you then moved to New York. Am I right in saying that? That you left Canada for New York? I left... Canada for New York, upstate New York, way later. Okay, so w what happened between there? Were you just then, until you moved to New York, were you doing a similar sketch each night? Did, did much change or was it the same? I evolved slowly into better paying bars, uh, clubs, and that was pretty much it. And I had written, I was developing a lot of my, my writing catalogue. And then when I, um, when my parents died, so I'd never left Ontario up to that point. And when my parents died, I, uh, I got a job through a friend at a very good paying, uh, 
stage production in Ontario. in Ontario still. But I'd never even pursued anything like that before because it wasn't about original music. I was I wanted to sing my own songs. I wanted to be a recording artist, not a. And you get the job opportunity after the death of your parents. Yes. And just for listeners sake, I think it's worth pointing out that both your parents died on the same night. Right. You know, and yeah. so I can't imagine, you know, where you must have been. Is it, were you the oldest child? I was the second oldest. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, already coming from a place where you were having to help the family to survive before that. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine what your thought process would have been at that point. And so t taking that job at a kind of more, is it a th more theatrical level? Is it just more of a secure job that you're looking for at that point? Well, that type of perform performing was a necessity for the pay. I would never have even considered pursuing a job like that, even though it paid better than what I was doing. It wasn't going to get me anywhere career-wise. Uh, I was focused on, on developing myself, not having a job in music. Mm. So it was the opposite of what I had ever thought of pursuing, but it was going to pay the bills. Mm. And now I had three uh, minors with me. Um, and, well, my sister was younger, but she was 18, but still living at home. So How old were you at the time? I was 22. Okay. And my brothers were four, 13 and 14. So they all moved in with me, the three of them. And I moved, we moved just in another place in Ontario where the show was. And it was more, I, in the end, uh, I learned so much. I was learning to, this sounds a bit ridiculous, but it was such a great preparation for me. I was learning to sing in high heel shoes, for example. This is nothing I would have, I was always, you know, on stage in my bare feet well, um, or running shoes. Yeah, and learning to walk in high heels is enough of a challenge, so I hear. It is. So, but to get paid in this show, I was required to be able to walk, sing, and dance in high heel shoes. I was also required to wear makeup, which I was, I did not even know how to apply. I knew how to put mascara on. That was it. But I didn't know anything about foundation or anything like that, or lipstick. And so I had to learn how to glam myself up. And did you enjoy that process? Was there kind of like a, did you enjoy the making yourself up? I hated it. I hated the feel of the foundation on my skin. Uh -huh. It was awful. And it took an, it was an adjustment. And then I had to wear, it was just, I had to wear costumes. And I felt silly, to be honest, in the beginning, because I thought, this is just not serious. Mm. This is a spectacle. It's not, I'm not being a serious artist here. And I took myself quite seriously. I was a very dedicated, very, you know, um, focused, serious, no partying, none of, none of that, just focused on my skills my vocals, my writing, uh, all of that. And so to be in this show where I was, you know, just shaking my booty, mm. basically, 
and trying to balance in high heel shoes, <laughs> you know, wearing sequins and all this makeup and everything and like hair, all the hair, because that was such a big hair time. You know, hair was all like back combed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I adjusted to that and thought, this is a stepping stone. It's gonna pay my bills. It's not gonna get me anywhere in my career. And I thought, I'm, and I did think this, I admitted, I'm never gonna need any of this glam stuff. Mm. But I gotta do it to get paid, so I'll do it, I accept it. Uh, but what I did learn and thought valuable in the moment was that I was quite feminine that I could be quite feminine. Because I, I was always very sporty and shy about my curves. And in this show, I, I was required to wear push-up bras. And, and normally, I'm, I'm like wearing the bra that would flatten me out the most. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, do you remember how long... Do you remember a moment where you kind of went... Oh, actually, I quite enjoy this. I'm like, I'm finding a way to express myself that I've never had the opportunity to do before. Did that take a week, a month, uh, you know? It took me, uh, I would say it took me a good first year, even probably more into the second year where I, where I started to appreciate the fact that, because the thing is, when you're, when you're out there looking uh, like a beautiful woman, and you're, you're wearing things that flatter your curves and, and you're in high heel shoes so everything is um, more, is sexier. And you've got big hair and you've makeup and all of this. And, and the, the, you're dancing like a woman, like people want a woman to dance. I felt it, that it was degrading. So in the beginning I was embarrassed by it. And thinking, this is nobody's listening to me. They're just looking at me. Um, I'm just, a, I'm just a Barbie doll up here. And I was, but I had to do it. And I was singing, and I was doing a lot of very challenging vocal things, which wasn't kept me interested because there were a lot of very, we were doing a lot of uh, like jazzy group vocaling, vocalizing, and um, a lot of songs that challenged my range and everything. So that was satisfying. But on every other level, I'm like, oh, okay. I got to go out there and be a Barbie doll now. So I would say it was only well into my second year that I, I started to realize, okay, I can, I've learned some skills here. Um, I actually am kind of pretty because I never thought that about myself. I thought, okay, yeah, I, I, I can be pretty. I can, I know now how to make, how to pretty myself up. And, and um, no one had ever showed me that before. I'd never, I didn't grow up in that type of household. And, and my dad was always very much a downer on that stuff. So now I'm thinking, okay, I can be productive with this, with these skills. And by the time I got to making videos, which was really just, I, I went right from that show, I got signed to a label, because at night, every night, I would go in and demo my, my music. I would go and like, kick into songwriting gear. So here we go, so the, you're seeing this performance as a day-to-day -day make ends meet job, but 
the common thread in so many people that I talk to is that I was having to pursue something and then down tools, get home, travel to a studio or pick up the guitar and then pursue the thing I loved the most. The real dream. So you were doing that at night. That's right. Right. So I would do that till wee hours in the morning and then I would have to get up and get the kids off to school. Um, we didn't have uh, a good heating system in our house, so I would have to, so I would put the fire on before bed, they would already be in bed. I would put the fire on before I went to bed, usually around three in the morning. And then I would, then it would go good for four hours. And then by, by seven, I'd have to get up before them and put it on again, or I wouldn't be able to get them out of bed because it would be too cold in the house. So I, I'm like, okay, I gotta heat up the house. So I'd fire up the wood stove. Uh, which I collected all the wood myself and chopped it and all that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm part You're a superhero <laughs> by the sounds of things. I'm, I'm yeah, not really. I'm a jack of all trades for sure. Um, but yeah, I would. I had. I had. Um, um, the only little money that I got after my parents died, I, I I put it down on a mortgage, and then with the job I had, they gave me the loan, and I was able to buy this little house, but with bad heating. <laughs> but I had lots of wood in the backyard, so I would cut the dead trees down, and then spend my downtime chopping wood and piling it. So uh, I would be able to heat the, the house in the winter. And it, trust me, it's very, you need it. Like, it's super cold. Mm -hmm. So, okay, get the kids up for school, uh, send them off, uh, go back for a nap. Or if there were rehearsals, I'd go for rehearsals. Then do the show. Um, and that was every night of the week. And then I would go to the studio, demo, and then those demos got me my, rec my record deal in Nashville. And then I was in Nashville. But just when you got that call to say, we've heard your demos and whatever, you must have felt like someone was watching over you or elated, or did it feel like a, just run with it? You know, this is what you've been working towards. Absolutely. The, the, the world opened up at that point. I felt invincible. It really gave me, it didn't scare me, it ignited me. I'm like, okay, now I'm unstoppable. That's all I needed. I just needed the door to open. Now I'm gonna run like hell and never look back. So I uh, quite, with a lot of guilt, I'd have to say though, I had to reorganize my family because now we'd been, um, it had been three years since my parents died and I was gonna have to um, they were adults now, but they were, or, you know, like late teens and adults. And I'm like, um, all right, you guys, you gotta, you gotta get your act together. I can't stay here. I gotta go do this and make something of my life or I'm never going to be able to help any, any of us. Mm. Um, and I always felt that burden too, that I was the only one that would ever make it to a level where, that I, that, that I had the opportunity to make to a level where I maybe could provide. Yeah, others wouldn't have to worry. Yeah. And my parents put that on me very young. Um, so I'm like, you guys, the only way I can do that is go. Mm. So I went to Nashville, put everything in my little truck, and uh, drove you, there by Did you drive myself. down? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's like 16 hours or something, or I don't know what, a 26 hours, I don't know, some crazy number. 
um, drove down there with everything in my truck, and I, um, the record label gave me like $21,000 or something. That was, that was it. That was my start. And, and I just wrote songs all day, went around and, um, you know, I, I had two producers from the label that were, that had signed me. And in the end, they, they decided that none of my songs were strong enough and that I needed to record other people's songs. So I'm like, okay, whatever, another stepping stone. So I'm shopping for songs all day now at this point and writing. I uh, record my first album and then that's when Mutt uh, discovered, you know, that I had something. And I was able to use those, those performance skills that I'd learned in my videos of that first album, which was so important. And if I hadn't done the Deerhurst shows, I would never have learned how to move like a woman. I mean, forget it, you know, like I was throwing footballs and basketball. Uh, gymnastics was the closest thing I ever got to having any kind of poise, mm. you know, any kind of feminine poise. So now watch, you know, working with the, the work, dancers had to work hard with me. They, they would come in after hours during, and during the day to work with me so that I could move in those heels and, you know, just understand how to, how to move with any elegance at all. Um, so that was, that's where it kicked in, making videos. I understood uh, that there were lights that I had, you know, I, I, had, I started to understand the environment of production and visual arts and visual, visual performing arts and that it was an art, and that it wasn't, you know, the beginning of what I thought was just exploiting me. And I had to get over that and through that, and out the other side of it. And then, you know, songs like, Man, I Feel Like a Woman happened, because I was genuinely feeling that. That was a literal expression that I was feeling that I was experiencing of this birth a late one, a late development of, of, of acceptance almost, that I was a woman and that I had to, that it was okay to embrace the curves and that it was a positive thing to feel empowered by what it is that you are. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to quickly interrupt this conversation for a quick advert break. Hello ladies and gentlemen, my name is George Ezra and my name is Ollie MN and we are here to promote our new podcast Phone a Friend. Yes, once a week George and I will be chatting on the phone about our experiences with mental health and discussing how it affects our daily lives. Me and Ollie have been friends for quite some time now and have found that talking to one another about the ups and downs of our mental health has made a huge difference and we hope that we can encourage some of you out there to talk and listen to the people in your lives too. Yeah, um, but more importantly than that, I hope I can finally exploit my friendship with a celebrity um, and achieve money, fame, glory, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, weekly episodes will be coming soon. Make sure you look out for Phone a Friend wherever you usually get your podcasts. 
we'll see you uh, we'll see you in the new year on and then we try and say phone a friend in unison again and probably fail phone, phone a friend, a friend. <laughs> phone, phone a friend, friend. Phone a friend. friend. <laughs> no, Come on. <laughs> you can do better than that. Okay, ready? Okay. How quickly, if ever, did you start to realise how empowering you were for other women? You know, I was going to say young women, but just women, I think. Did, did you have a sense of, well, actually, the words that I'm putting out there and the, the way that I'm holding myself and is going to be inspiring and empowering other women? Did you, did you feel that? I didn't. I didn't realise it was going to impact anybody in that way at all. I was just purely being myself and enjoying that new feeling so late. I was, I was 28 when I, when, when I had my first hit. Uh, so, no, later, I was in my early 30s when I had my first hit, you know. Which, which is still, you know, relatively so young, but actually relatively, again, in music, you know, even today, people are, I think, Billie Eilish, who just released her debut album, I I could be wrong, but she's 16 or 17, and it's, that's not uncommon. No, but what I mean by older, I was a late bloomer in, in, in embracing my femininity. So I never, as a teenager, I dressed like a boy. I uh, never, I never wore a bikini, I never wore a bathing suit, never went to the beach. I, I was just very shy about my body. And so I missed out on a lot of years of enjoying uh, being a woman in a woman's body. Mm. And I wished I was a guy. You know, I remember my mom said to me when I was, I was 10 and I was so boyish. Um, and my mom said, well, well so what, what do you want to be when you grow up, Eileen? Because I, I would always threaten her that I would quit music whenever we would get it. If we would get into an argument, I'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting music. And that would, like, kill her. That was, like, stabbing her. <laughs> if I wanted to say anything to my mother that, that would get her attention, I would tell her I was quitting music. Would you music. say, I've driven you to too many dive bars for oh, you to quit? Oh, <laughs> uh, so, so, anyway, yeah. So, I'm, I'm quitting music. That's it. I am, you know. Because it was really her dream. Yeah. But... Uh, she said, what, do you, what, do you want, what, do you, what would you do then? Well, I said, well, first of all, I want, I'd want to be a man. I'd want to be, you know, I want to do man things, not fussy, fluffy, frilly girl things. And I think it was really now in, in reflection, I, and she was horrified, of course, but uh, I thought, and, and then I started developing, you know, because I'm like 10. So then all of a sudden it's like, whoa. So I was always strapping myself down and dressing like a boy. I, wanted, I didn't want to let go of that, that childhood uh, tomboy. And I didn't like the attention that it brought either. The, uh, you know, the whole sexist, uh, gawkish um, man that makes you so uncomfortable in your own skin made me just like want to hold on to being the tomboy mm. who wants to be a woman 
Yeah, so you could, when everybody's it, like, you're yeah. Not, you're not even inviting it then, you're eradicating, a, you know. Uh, I, I just didn't want any part of being the center of attention as a sexual object. Yeah, yeah. No part of it. It, was, it disgusted me. And so I put it off as long as I could. And it was only, like I said, it was, it, just by default, I ended up in this show at Deerhurst that, where it was my job to look like a Barbie doll. And so luckily I did um, learn to realize and embrace this empowerment of, not of my gender, but the empowerment of embracing that whatever I was, was me. And that this person has, you know, big boobs and a tiny waist. And when I move, I, there's something to it and whatever. It, it's, it's, uh, that is who I am. And deal with it kind of thing. Deal Just... with it. Or, or, or I'm not, I'm no longer ashamed of it or in, in a mode of avoiding it. I don't, I don't want to avoid that anymore. That's just so tiring trying to be something that you're not. So in, in my very first video, I wore no bra. I, I completely, it wasn't rebelling. It was embracing. There's a very big difference there. Um, I never really felt like a feminist in that sense. I never, I wasn't rebelling. I was just saying, well, this is my body and, um, I kind of like it, actually. I like my body. I'm fit. I'm, I'm, an, I'm athletic. And this is what it looks like in a, in a dress. <laughs> and uh, so that was very daring. And then the belly button and all of that, I... So at the time, was that daring? Only in country music. Okay, so in pop music, this was already being embraced and, you know... Yeah. It was only... But it was being more exploited in pop. So in country music, you were kind of a waving a flag or you know at the front of something that was new to that genre of music yes they they saw it as shock factor as uh as exploitation um and i'm like are you kidding i'm totally in control here these are my decisions i i'm i'm directing this uh look this is what i want to be was there, before this, was there expectations of women in country music to be a certain way, a kind of, and if so, what was that? Oh, definitely. Um, no, you know, not, very little flesh, you know, the, don't flaunt your curves or don't, not flaunt. I mean, I wasn't flaunting anything. I was just, you know, it's not like I was wearing latex in my first video, but, <laughs> um, or, or in a bikini, but... Oh, I always used Dolly Parton as my mentor for many reasons. She was an incredible storyteller, songwriter. Um, she had an incredible uh, um, character, personality uh, of living, uh, you know, growing up poor and, and but uh, maintaining an incredibly positive attitude, um, a generous uh uplifting person, like generous and sharing her uh, positivity and her joy with people. Her excellence as a vocalist, as a live performer, 
and the way she celebrated her beauty. I thought, wow, now that is a powerful woman. And I just thought that is someone that I want to grow, grow up to, uh, to be. But secretly, as a child, I certainly would never have ventured there till much mm. later. Did, did it, was there something quite exciting for you about ruffling feathers in kind of a stagnant genre or, or kind of like, well, if there's stuffy old people that think that this isn't right, well, serves you right for thinking that way kind of thing. You know what, I'm not, I wasn't being provocative okay. in that sense. But I really once, wasn't. But once you realized you had provoked, once right. there was a backlash, did you get a kick out of that at all? No, I mean, I don't take pleasure in it. I, it just, I, I'm a very bold, serious care person. Mm -hmm. So the resistance was already there before I even made that first video. But I'll tell you what, hap what, what was naughty, sort of, is that the label had given me a very, very, very limited budget for that first video. And the, so I had to go shopping for the clothes. So the director's like, okay, um, here's, you know, whatever it was, 200 bucks or something. So I'm in like the, 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 the bargain store, just pulling whatever I could within that budget. And so of course it was a dress too big, I had to pin it and everything. And I just pulled whatever was there. And, and I, so I just put the whole direct, the, 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 the styling together myself. Uh, there was no hair and makeup person. So I was doing that myself and I still really didn't quite have it right <laughs> yet. But so I did the styling and I did all of the, and I just choreographed it myself and everything. And it was just basically the two of us. And so I had free reign on what I wanted to look like, how I wanted to move. Cause the director didn't, he was just following me. But, and I think that's a really, for, for young musicians listening to this, I think what a lot of people, and you shouldn't try and rush into it, but what a lot of people that you end up working with really want from you is for you to have an idea of who you are and what it is you want to do. I think th that helps everybody when the artist themselves is like, well, I, I know how I want to present myself. I think it's, it, it, it's certainly one category of artist or type of artist because there are a lot of very successful artists that are pretty much packaged and then put into the scenario. But and, and that works too. I would argue that although it works, not in the same way, I would say. Right. So I think there's something different that resonates when you are the artist driving the, yeah. the creative uh, process. Uh, I would agree. I mean, that is, you know, that is definitely what I do. Well, but, but I mean, doing the research for this, and I hope we're not, in fact, I'll get onto that in a second. I, just one thing that I wanted to say just before I left for Switzerland, my sister said, do you know, I remember watching TV when I was a kid once and Shania was on a TV programme back home and you had said, or this is how she remembers it, you had said in a kind of joking way, you had referred to it getting cold at certain points of the year in Canada where you were from and that was when you had stopped shaving your legs, right? You had made a joke about that. Because <laughs> so nobody's gonna. <laughs> yeah. That's but right. she said, even as a kid, she didn't know what it was about that that she found empowering or inspiring, but she remembers 
being like, oh, that's, I've never even thought that that would be a thing. So I think in the way that you, <laughs> isn't it? And the fact that she's now oh, 29 and that's that. lived with her. Uh, but there's something, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't have been aware of, you know, the impact you were having on other people's lives. Because when you're doing something so organically, it's hard to imagine that it would affect other people's lives because... There, there were, you know, I think I, I definitely uh, work with intention. It's like walking with purpose. That's who I am. I, I you know, and I, that is what motivates me, the, the purpose, the reason. But the, it's, it's more of a, it's not like I sit there and I analyze. I'm not analytical about what, what the, what, what, what the uh, objective is. I'm not sitting there going, okay, well, how can I, uh, what can I do to, to write a hit song or whatever? Um, I, there's no formula, for example, to, is, is what I'm saying. And my intentions are always more global. You know, I want to I write something that feels good, that makes me happy. I want to write something that is relatable, that, that communicates my truth, but that others always, also find either inspiring or moving or, or motivating. And it's always been my goal to, to, be, to communicate. That's what I make music for. Mm. It's, it's, it's a means of communication for me. And I think the, or one very strong piece of evidence that you've, you know, that suggests you've done that extremely well, is um, managing to cross over from this country world that you started off in to being one of, if not the biggest name in pop music in America and in Europe, around the world. Um, and it, it was, for me, it was it was a learning curve doing the research and learning that you started so heavily in country. That because where I come from, from a point of reference, was that you're Shania Twain, the pop mm -hmm. star, you know. Um, and it made me think of Taylor Swift in this, you know, for this generation, there's this, and then it turns out you've worked with her and, mm -hmm. you know, and I, that, that was... Yeah, it really made me smile that I'd come to that conclusion before. But the the some people may not realise how hard it can be to start in a genre and cross over to a wider audience. Um, but also then, once that has happened for an artist, the um, the role that they unintentionally play of introducing a new audience to where they came from. So you will have been, you know, an entry point for a lot of listeners to country music that wouldn't have necessarily listened to country before you. Mm -hmm. um, I found it really, and country music so, it's, it's such a unique genre of music in that there's purists unlike any other genre, I think there's, you know, almost historians and, you know, is this Absolutely. to the T. Um, like football clubs. Yeah, yeah. It's a purist 
there is a purist element and also a very committed element. But was it your, was it your um, you know, dream to cross over? Were you going, okay, so country music's great, this is where I've started, this is what I've grown up listening to, but a part of me wants to prove myself on that stage as well. I was never, uh, my earliest, uh, like I said, so my earliest performance is from the age of eight years old. Uh, because the old country was very popular at the time with the, with the bar, the club audience, I was doing old time country. But I was also doing the folk uh, music of, like I said, bread and Bee Gees, which is not country at all. Uh, so I was doing a mix already, even at that age, of the Eagles, uh, Fleetwood Mac, which was all, they were always more on the folk side of it, of pop, but I was already mixing it in there. And then my own writing was not country at all. Uh, so I was always a hybrid artist. I think, and by the time I was uh, signed by a label, I wasn't very old, I wasn't old time country at all by then. I'd evolved into just whatever I was. You know, you, you find your own style. So what really ended up happening was when I got my record deal and I was able to get past that step, first stepping stone, that first album that they wanted me to make and I was writing all my own music for the record. It became my own kind of country. And because the label, the, the country music labels were actually signing more than the pop labels at the time, that was just where my opportunity was. So I, it was, the opportunity was the door that I was telling you about, mm -hmm. that, I, that I was gonna, I ran through that door. Didn't matter what the genre was to me. I was my own music, so I wasn't, it could have been any, any, any genre. I would have jumped in there, I would have still ended up making my music, you yeah, see, yeah. regardless. The, the, the thing that I find so incredible, and you've just mentioned Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, and I was scrolling through the biggest selling albums of all time, and your album Come On Over, sits at number 11, having sold 20 million copies, which is just an obscene number. And so you're number 11 and Fleetwood Mac are number 10 and Eagles, I believe, are number one and number six or whatever. Right. You know, they're, they're up there. So... Oh, I thought Pink... I know Pink Floyd is up there too. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible mix of... Oh man, you're, you've got good company. Artists. I do, <laughs> I know. So th th this album in particular, come on over, with hindsight on your side, are you able to pinpoint certain things that meant that that record could be just as big as it was, if that makes sense? No way. Or is it way. still over? No way, this is the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm very critical on myself and Mutt certainly is very critical uh, you know, on a production level. And, and I'm a very hard worker, so I was gonna go out there and 
you know, work and, and you know, uh, bring the music to the public as best I could to do the, the effort of the album justice. And that's a really big part of it as well. You know, there's so much follow-up work to do afterward in, in order to uh, reach the public. So I, that I was determined to do and, you know, determined to do my absolute best on the album, write the best songs I could. But you never know. I, I remember, you know, Mutt was more of a sounding board. We should just say, so Mutt was the producer that you right. worked with right. and was your partner for, you know, however long. So you did a l however many of your records together as a partnership. That's right. We were co-writers um, co and Mutt was uh, the producer, sole producer. And, and he had come from a heavier background. He was a rock producer. I mean, he had done, you know, pop and rock you know, ACDC and Def Leppard, but then Billy Ocean and um, Brian Adams, all kinds of giant records. So he was very well established and already legendary in the record producing of pop and rock music. So I was the first country genre labeled genre uh, artist that he'd had and, and, and the first female album that he would have ever have done. And then they turned out to be the biggest records they had ever, that he had ever done, <laughs> uh, which is, I'm sure, uh, very fun for him. <laughs> but we both worked very, very hard. But the, the thing is, is the, when you're in it, the only, the only sounding board and objectivity that I had was m m as my producer saying, and as the co-writer going, when I, you know, when I said something like, you know, who's better, your boots, Bennett, or when I played that to him, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, he would perk up a little bit. And he's very, very hard to perk up about music because <laughs> he's extremely critical. Like I was saying, he's very, very critical and very serious. So whenever I would have an idea that sparked him, I knew that I was onto something. But that was it. That's the only gauge I had. And then then you put it out and hope that everybody that it sparks everybody else too. But but is there is there moments in that album's life where you go, oh well actually I don't know, would that particular video that we recorded really propelled it or that particular radio station or that performance of that awards or was there in Looking back, are there certain things? There are a lot of elements. I would have to say that it is usually a collective. How many years did you work that album for? Was it, did you talk? Well, so there were three, that period of, of, that period was a succession of three diamond albums, which is very, very rare. Diamond is 10 million right. copies Right, so they sold. were consecutive three diamond. I'm not even sure who else has done that, honestly. Like, there's people that have had more than one diamond album, um, but not three in a row without anything else in between. Like, original albums, not like yeah, Greatest yeah, Hits yeah. and all that stuff. 
So it's a very rare succession, you know, consistent level of success. And there were so many singles off each one of those albums that I never stopped working. Mm -hmm. So the whole period of 10, 11 years was video after video after video, um, television show after television show, performances everywhere, and then the tours started. And I wasn't not working those, that music I've during that whole time. I've got to apologize, because I got so hung up on Come On Over doing as well as it had. I didn't right. realize it was one of three albums in yeah, a row. Yeah, that it was the achieved. second one. Wow. Mm -hmm. Come so On Over was the second diamond. So was up. up. The first one was A Woman In Me. Uh -huh. The second one was Come On Over, and then the third one was Up. And they all went diamond. So it was... And do you think that your introduction to work in the world and, you know, the necessity to work as a child and everything worked in your favour when it came to promoting these albums? I, I think that my work ethic comes from survival. And you learn very quickly to not take anything for granted and to make the most of everything that comes your way. So, like I said, with the door opening with a record label, any record label that would have, any major label that would have opened that door, I would have walked through it. Are you kidding? I'm not going to be beggars can't be choosers, man. I'm like, this is an international record deal. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about the rest later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like right now, I just got to run with this. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're feeling that sense of that there is almost it's like being free like there's a somebody is setting you free you you freaking fly man mm. you don't wait around and think about it mm. so you don't ask questions or no the, yeah the genre was not my focus going back to that part yeah, of it yeah. and 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 the same thing with and so and that's where the work ethic comes in as well it's like i'm just going to do whatever i need to do i'm not going to be a diva about this i have nowhere to go back to i've got no there is no going back so out of necessity in that sense i had to make it work and i've never lost that what people call drive but mm. it's not drive it's it's almost anxiety in a way because, mm. and it's, it's respect and appreciation as well at this point now, because I, I do reflect on how hard I've worked mm -hmm. and, and appreciate what I've invested in all of this. You, while I was, again, you know, in my Shania Twain bubble doing this research, <laughs> I, um, I found uh, behind the scenes kind of documentary-esque film made by your husband, Fred, or filmed by your husband, mm -hmm. Fred, for, from the beginning, from you finding out or you agreeing to take a residency in Vegas, right the way through to that performance and that show being put on. And it's such a, for anyone listening, I, you really should go and watch it because it's, Normally, behind the scenes kind of films, you might get a bit of a chat, you know, side of stage while people are rehearsing or whatever. But 
because of the nature of it being your husband, there's these amazing interviews with you <laughs> where you, it looks like you've just, you know, sprung up in the middle of the night with a struck by inspiration and you, you move back and we can do this and we can do that. And the thing is, I think a lot of people assume of the people that they're going to be watching that they turn up at the venue half an hour before they play, have a glass of wine, get on stage, do their bit and then go home. And this, I've never seen a better example of just how much work goes into a show by the people you're going to watch. And your, your input and interest from, from harmonies to dance routines to what the video screens are playing to, I mean, at one point you're even choosing what scent is going to be blown into the audience. And it's every minute detail has been through, passed through the filter of the performer, which in this case is you, which I just found so inspiring myself because it's, it's easy to think that some of these things at such a level are actually out of the hands of the artist, but it couldn't be further from the truth. I couldn't believe just how involved you were and that goes back to what you were saying about your first video, you being, you know, picking what you're going to wear and, you know, how you're going to move and present yourself and perform. And, yeah, I would love to talk to you about that, the residency in Vegas and the, what, you, what stands out at the moments of putting that show together and how it was to... Because you're doing another residency. That's right, right. right. Starting... And I'm in a very different place now. I mean, yeah, this evolution yeah. has carried on. So, yeah, talk about the, the, the journey of putting that Vegas show together. This was, uh, first of all, something that I was petrified of doing. And I, there was a lot of hesitation, a lot of reluctancy on my part, because I was still very much uh, recovering my voice. So... What I had done was I'd, I'd, I'd procrastinated for a very long time about ever singing again or ever trying to sing again. When you say recovering your voice, this has to do with... Uh, the Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease and a 15-year span of kind of taking yourself out of the limelight. Yes. Which has got to be daunting coming back from 15 years of... It was, it was terrible, but I figured if I don't force myself, I've got to force myself out of the comfort zone or I'm never going to do it. So there were all those years of uh, not being able to sing anything spontaneous, not being, you know, not being able to do like a real live performance or anything sustainable. So I could go into the studio and after like hours and hours and hours and hours of prepping, I could do a studio performance. But to, to ever do a stage production again? Oh no, I never, ever thought I'd be able to do it. So I had to put myself through the paces. And I am, I, I mean, if it was rigorous. All of the prodding and poking and specialists and, and therapy and everything that it took. The only thing that really gave me the courage was giving myself a deadline and some pressure. So I did procrastinate about the commitment for a while, but then once I committed, I had to go all in and make it happen. And that is what you're seeing in that documentary of 
the the process, the evolution, the fear. Uh, the book I recommend highly, Life is Fair, that was a huge encouragement for me on you've got to get past the self-pity. And um, there are always going to be things that you can't do. And, but you've got to find the things that you can do. That, that's what you have to do. You, you must go on. You must survive. This is my, <laughs> this is my thing. So anyway, and I can't survive without music. It's, it's something that I need. It's a, a self-nurturing element. Without my voice, you might as well, you know, I don't know. It's like cutting off a limb or something. It's part of me. And so it, it's, it's, it's a handicap that I'll have forever. But it doesn't stop me. And I wasn't going to let it stop me. So this is the Lyme's disease. The Lyme's disease. Well, the effect the Lyme's disease did on my, had on my vocal cords. So doing that, committing to that residency, and it was such, on such a huge scale. I'm like, what? oh, there's no turning back now. I've really got to make it happen. What capacity was the venue? Do you remember how many people? I think there's, there's upper end of 4,000, 4,700. So it's like, say, 4,000, 5,000 people. For how many nights would you do a week or? Four nights a week. Wow. And, but I learned in the end that it wasn't sustaining my voice that was the problem. I learned so much about my voice and it's, and it's, it's been a very long road, but I'm, I just learned so many really great things about my voice that I never knew before and that I never had before. And the pressure, there was a bottleneck pressure there that it's like opening a bottle of champagne. It's like, oh, yay. There's something really great at the end of this. <laughs> um, and it was worth celebrating. And I'd really struggled. Uh, but, you know, by, by opening night, I was so ready. I, I wasn't even afraid. I can't believe it. I was really feeling good about the opening night. I worked very hard. And I also believe that uh, preparation the more prepared you are, the more, um, the less fear and anxiety you have about something. And like studying, the more you study. So being involved, going back to what you were saying about being involved with the production, to me, that is what saves me a lot of the anxiety in the end. Because by the time I'm on the stage performing it, I know the whole, I know every little thing going on. I bet you do. It's like, wow, okay, yeah. you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm part of the fabric. I'm not... I don't feel like I'm standing out there naked. I'm, I'm in this. No, you really are, you know, as I said, it's, and yeah, please, if you're listening to this, go and watch it because this is a performance that involved two live horses. You know, there was VT bits that you filmed with a leopard and there's the, you know, you on a motorbike at one point, the, yeah. the costume changes alone, the amount you're moving on stage, but every little part of it has, as I said, come through you. And I just think that's really incredible. It was an important experience for me. And yeah. I also felt a lot, a lot of the elements in the show were, I thought I, I, I can do this 
if I produce the show around or create the show around all things that make me happy yeah. and that make me feel good that are uplifting for me. So that's where the, the horses came in. <laughs> yeah. And then my sister was one of the backup singers. So that was really part of my support. Uh, all those elements because, you know, the, 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 the effects of the Lyme disease on my vocal cords is permanent mm. and I will never, you know, be able to sing in the same way that I did. Uh, as far as like the way I sing, the way I, I'm able to manipulate my voice, but, uh, I've overcome being bothered by it. I guess is really more than anything. And that's, that's what that residency did for me. Um, and so, yeah, I've gone on to do all kinds of other things since then, touring, and, and now I'm into another residency. And, so I've, you know, walking into your place today and there's guitars laying about and you're, you're, you're at the studio at the moment and writing and getting ideas down. And that's a... Uh, you know, and it's clear that you're feeling inspired by that. And do you, can you ever imagine a time where you go, ah, oh, do you know what? I've had my fill with music. I'm gonna go on to something else. Or do you have the sneaking suspicion that this is something, you know, that's gonna be with you forever? Music will always be with me. I, I don't wanna live without music. I would be very sad if, if music was not a part of my life. Uh, even as a listener, I love to listen to music. And I love going to shows. I'm very, I'm a, I'm a music enthusiast from all angles. Creating music, as far as what I do to, with music, is my favorite part um, as an artist. I could live without, I couldn't live without I could live without any other element except creating the music. I need to do that. I have to do that. Even if nobody ever hears me, you know what I'm saying? I need, I need it as a self. Uh, it's it's kind of like a lifeline. It's a therapy for mm. me. It's, uh, indul it's an indulgence that I need. What a beautiful to, thing to have. And just, we should end in the way that we started by saying, just reiterating the fact that we are together here in Switzerland, um, in Montreux, which is a relatively small town, but that just has music running through its veins. And we actually met three or four months ago at the Montreux Jazz Festival, where I performed and you're the ambassador of that festival now. And that's, you know, another part of your life and, and a role that you wouldn't take on unless you loved music. Um, and so if we could just end with talking about your involvement with the festival and with this town and, you know, what that means to you. You know, playing the role of an ambassador of something that you love and, and, and uh, are enthusiastic about is just is easy and natural. It, it's, um, it, it's the most fun I've ever had at the jazz festival being involved 
So, you know, getting, uh, you know, I got to meet so many more artists this year. Obviously, we met, and it's just such a pleasure to welcome other foreigners who are artists to the region that I've now been, uh, that I've made my home now for 23 years. So I'm a little bit more of the welcoming party element from the artist's perspective. And sharing that with other artists is just fun. <laughs> really, it's just fun. And I run around from stage to stage trying to catch as many shows as I can. And I'm on fire during the whole festival this year, particularly because I'm involved with, with this role, um, this ambassador role. And sharing my enthusiasm, first of all, of the history of the festival is incredible. So I'm very excited about uh, going up to the chalet this afternoon and reviewing all of the, the, the magic that's being preserved up there. Should we wait for that? Doesn't matter. So there's a plane going over, I think. <laughs> there is a plane going. <laughs> That's okay. But we'll be good, we're good. We'll be good. Uh, so we're going up to Claude Nobbs. We're going up to Claude Nobbs. He was a, he was a good friend of mine. And he used to always uh, drag me around. I say drag me around because he was, <laughs> he kind of was dragging me around. He was always, he was running around from stage to stage trying to catch all the acts and stay in, in, in contact with everyone as the best ambassador the jazz festival could ever have had, of course, being the founder. So it's through him that I learned to love being in that role of welcoming people and, and sharing the enthusiasm and the love and the passion for not only for the festival, but for the region and the unique location of, 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 the, uh, of the festival. So it was him that started taking me around backstage, up and down the stairs and up and down the elevators, and then we would run into... I mean, those stairs will keep you fit. Exactly. So but do you know who you can run into in those staircases? I mean, because all the artists are doing the same thing. So you might run into, uh, you know, anyone. It could be any, it could be Janet Jackson, could be... Uh, I don't know, I've, I've, I've run into Pitbull back there. I've run into everybody you can imagine in that backstage area over the years, but with Claude, because I would never do that normally. I, I would sit and watch the shows, but he would be the one to come and get me from my seat and pull me around and we'd run everywhere all over the place. So this is what, and then when he died, that was missing. And I thought, oh, I really miss that, being in that connection element of the stage and the artists who are visiting here for just such a brief period of time. And they can't come to me, but I can go to them. I can run around and do all of that. So that is what I got to do this year. Amazing. And, um, I mean, you talk about running into people. I walked off stage and Shania kind of said, quick, come this way, come this way. And Quincy Jones was sat in a lounge backstage <laughs> and I just, my jaw kind of dropped. And I just thought, George, what are you doing here? How has this happened? Yeah. But isn't that fantastic? It's beautiful. It so amazing. to be able to connect people, because you wouldn't otherwise do that. I no, mean, people no. cross each other sometimes backstage, yeah. but... I also find that a lot of artists are quite shy people and, and they keep themselves to themselves. That's right. Um, and it takes somebody that is um, 
I'm normally the same. I'm, I'm quite shy back, you know, in my own environment. But in this role, I feel very energized by sharing what it is to, to, to connect people and, and um, invite people into that hosp hospitality of what Switzerland is really all about. Awesome. Well, Shania, thank you very much. That was amazing. Thank you. I absolutely love that. Thank yeah, you this for was sharing really your fun. stories. I love it. Yeah, thank you very much. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That was Shania Twain. Thank you so much, Shania, for your time and for your stories. Just amazing. Um, I hope all of you out there enjoyed that and are having a lovely Christmas and New Year period. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful 2020. And um, yeah, I will see you in the new year for all the new exciting projects that I've got going on. Thank you again for meeting me here. And um, yeah, see you soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye.